This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The first thing we do on an acquisition is look at the data set, normalizing that data set and bringing it together. That honestly tends to be the easy part of it, Clayton. Then it's, you know, what's unique, what's unique about the customer relationships, what unique services were they providing? And there's always a number of those. And we have to figure out, do we leave those alone with the group, uh, you know, the group or the acquisition that's doing those? Or is it something we can replicate on a larger scale? And there's never a single answer to that. You know, it's always somewhat fluid depending on the situation, the clients and the demands of the market. Today, we are talking about verification services. And today's guest, Joel Rickman, GM of verification services at Equifax, brings the heat. We make this topic, this incredibly important topic and capability, very interesting. So please hold your attention on us here at Housing News with me, Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. Don't jump over and listen to Sarah Wheeler and Logan Motoshami. I love their show, but this is the episode you want to listen to. We talk about how verifications for income and assets work in today's environment, some of the the risk from cybersecurity and fraud that lenders need to be paying attention to, the products that Workforce Solutions is focused on rolling out right now. And when Joel goes and sits down with a mortgage lender, what those lenders are asking for in terms of innovation and product improvement that they need to fuel the future of their mortgage lending business. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Joel Rickman. So I'm here with Brenna Nath, the leader of Housing Wire's HW Plus and events business. Brenna, welcome. Hey. So we're going to talk about Housing Wire Annual for a minute. So I don't know if this event is for you. It's certainly not for everybody in our audience, but it is for the leaders of the housing industry. We have built Housing Wire Annual for mortgage banking, mortgage origination, capital markets, and real estate brokerage leaders. Brenna, give us a glimpse into what the leaders of our industry can expect at Housing Wire Annual. It's always great to know who else is going to be in the room, right? So, I mean, just this week, wrapped up a call with Ginger Wilcox, who is now the president of Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate. That's a great example of someone who's been across the housing, real estate, mortgage industry. Other great speakers include Baron Silverstein. He's the president over at New Res, Cindy Keith, chief strategy officer at NFM Lending, Alec Hansen, chief marketing officer at Loan Depot. I'm specifically saying their titles and the companies because I think that really lets you have a perspective of who are the peers in this space um, and really some of the biggest companies out there that you want to kind of mingle with. We're also bringing some of uh, the industry thought leaders and economics and data like Logan Motoshami and Mike Simonson, who are both part of our team at HW Media. And Sandra Thompson from the FHFA is also joining us. So like I said in the beginning, this event is not for everybody in the housing industry, but it is for the leaders who want to help define the future of mortgage and real estate. If you're interested, check out our website. It's October 10th at the Hyatt Lost Pines near Austin, Texas. Brenna, any other details? Uh, it's a great place to bring your family, I would say. But even if it's just your team or coworkers, this is a great spot to bring those people closest to you to either learn about the industry or spend extra time with your family and rest along with Get the Knowledge.
All right, folks, we're back for another episode of Housing News. And today we have Joel Rickman, the general manager of Verification Services, which is the largest division of Equifax's workforce solutions business. Joel, welcome to Housing News. Well, thank you so much, Clayton. It's uh, it's great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you today. I'm excited to learn more about workforce solutions and the the business that you lead within Equifax, but also excited to talk about some of the product innovation that's occurred in recent years and what you have on the horizon, and then go into to home equity lending and the HELOC product that's gotten a lot of attention recently, and we think is going to be a you know a buzzy product category in the home finance world in the next few years. But Joel, I want to kick off with a with a nod to some performance data, and I, I hope I have the right data sources here. But as I'm looking at the workforce solutions business, like I'm, I'm seeing like over fifty percent compound annual growth rate over the last several years. Um, am I, are we looking at the numbers the right way? You are. It's it's a bit general there in your your assessment, but yeah, we've we've been on a a very fun ride here the last three or four years. Um, and it's it's been fueled by really a fundamental drive in the industry, somewhat of, of changing the approach to lending in regards to bringing more data assets into every type of loan uh, that gets originated. And it's it's also the other side of our business where we do a lot of work for um, for government agencies. We do a lot of work for people changing jobs and getting background screening of the jobs they've had before. And then we provide a lot of services to employers that um, are very HR compliance heavy and, and they prefer to outsource that to someone that specializes in it. So all of those have been working really well for us over the last few years. And it's allowed us to build the, uh, the work number database um, more than doubling the amount of records than we had just a few years ago, which has really helped fuel our growth as well. So you mentioned the work number, but let's go into the entire workforce solutions business and the verification services business line. So give us an overview of the business, the product and solutions that that you bring to market. All right. Well, we, we could talk for hours here, so I will try to give you the elevator speech. But if you think about the workforce solutions service, it's... Um, it's a two-sided model where on one side we have a number of organizations. So think of the big employers in the world um, that employ hundreds of thousands of, of um, employees, and they have services that they need to provide those employees, such as getting I-9s filled out on time when they hire folks, providing appropriate tax forms, um, providing uh, unemployment support if, if that happens to be the case. We provide all of those services on the left side to those employers. And in turn, for providing those services and, and helping them in those areas, they entrust us with um, the data of, of their payroll, which allows us to do other things for them, such as verify employment if someone's changing jobs or if someone needs to apply for government benefits or what we're here to talk about. If someone's looking to uh, get a mortgage or a HELOC or even a personal loan, they'll use our data to verify the ability to pay that back. And so we don't own the data from these employers. We're entrusted with it and uh, we're stewards of the data on their behalf and provide it out to uh, those organizations that have the right permissible purpose to do it. But as you look across what all we do there, that employer side of our business fuels some of the growth. And we also have partnerships with a number of organizations uh, and payroll providers that have uh, inventory of, of payroll records and such. And we have relationships with them to make that part of the work number ecosystem as well. And then if you go to some of the other areas that we provide services, we've recently acquired uh, an organization called APRIS Insights. Um, 
that organization is uh, brings the, the largest population of real-time uh, incarceration data and um, judgment data and that type of information from the courts. And why that's important is is we are the kind of the backbone network in that space that helps um, alert people if someone's being released from prison or helps people find which prison somebody might be in or helps all of the law enforcement when they're moving prisoners around or trying to identify them. And so that data becomes really critical uh, for the ecosystem of our, our national police and, and um, uh, organizations across the country. And, and we take a lot of pride in having that information that, you know, and taking care of information that has to be correct. It's not directional. It's, it's got to be verified and it's got to be correct. And that's what we try to specialize in. So when you think about workforce solutions, it sounds like there's like kind of the benefit of a double-sided marketplace where you're able to offer services to, to employers, which fuels a data cloud, which ultimately fuels verification services. So you have a, you sit on a proprietary data set and are able to serve both sides of the ecosystem. Wow, Clayton, I will sign you up and put you on my sales team. You, you, you nailed it quickly. <laughs> but like very few data businesses, they don't ride completely on proprietary. So you talked about like some other data partnerships and licensing agreement with some of the um, payroll services companies. How do you think about like, so Adverse Insights was an acquisition. That was obviously like a data set that you wanted in the business. How do you think about when you license data or partner versus like acquire? So it's part of the proprietary, um, you know, the proprietary Equifax secret, secret sauce. Well, great question. So first and foremost, we'll take a couple of steps back. When um, when the current leadership team here at Workforce started um, started being built up around 2016, the company at that point was already over 20 years old. It originally started as a company called Talks and was, was much smaller. At that time, we only had about 7,000 organizations that were contributing to the work number database. And Talks was an acquisition, right? Like, yep, o- yep. like over a billion dollar acquisition back decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a great company, but we didn't, we as Equifax didn't grow it um, really rapidly until the last five or six years. And that was fueled off of looking at things a little bit differently. And, and part of that is as the path that was going down, you know, we had 7,000 contributors representing a little over 50 million uh, active employees. And then we started partnering and taking a different approach on how do we, you know, how do we get more records available? Because the number one thing I heard from clients when I joined the organization in 2017 was they will, they also, they love the data, but we, you know, we need more transactions. It's, it's tough if we come to you and we only get an answer one out of 15 or 15% of the time, 20% of the time. And so our focus over the last few years is do everything we can to build out that database. And it has been a part, it has been a, a combination of acquiring companies similar to what Talks was that, that had a, a bucket of uh, customers that they provided services for and uh, had those records. And it's been building partnerships with payroll providers that have those records. When we go to look at acquisitions for our business unit workforce, we're really looking for what we refer to as those tuck-in companies. Either they're going to bring records with them to us, or they're going to bring a very unique data set um, that we we specialize in. And that's where the, the last acquisition came from, was even though it was not aligned with employment data, it's a unique data set that has to be verified and accurate. So when you think about that tuck-in acquisition playbook. Can you share some of your lessons on on integration and and how the 
how teams have come together, how technological capabilities have come together. We, we've, I mean, I've been building through acquisition here at HW and, you know, every integration feels a little bit different, but I'm, I'm interested in how like adverse insights and other deals have been integrated into the business uh, during, during your, your time leading this business unit. Well, it's, it's interesting. And the approach that we take is we look for similarities and then we look for uniquenesses. And so there's similarities in the verification side that, you know, everybody's providing income and employment information when we look at it and getting that data out. So the first thing we do on an acquisition is look at the data set, normalizing that data set and bringing it together. That honestly tends to be the easy part of it, Clayton. Then it's, you know, what's unique, what's unique about the customer relationships, what's you, what unique services were they providing? And there's always a number of those. And we have to figure out, do we leave those alone with the group, uh, you know, the group or the acquisition that's doing those, or is it something we can replicate on a larger scale? And there's never a single answer to that. You know, it's always somewhat fluid depending on the situation, the clients and the demands of the market. But, you know, the the one piece of advice I guess I would say about acquisitions is um, they're always exciting. You always learn so much and they're never as easy as you think they are when you go into them. <laughs> no, I think I, I was laughing as you said, the data is the easy part. It's, I mean, that's completely true. Yes. Technology is complicated. Normalization and integration is complicated, but it's the people side that always ends up being the most challenging part of, of integration and not, not just managing personalities, but also just getting people into the, the culture of the organization and, and, uh, business like Equifax where like it, it's pretty loud and clear. There's a strong culture. I, I know you're rocking the Equifax red shirt and uh, with the branding in the background, like it's a, it's a company that you join and you're, you're proud of it. So that's gotta be a, um, that's gotta be an important part of integration too, is making fee- people start to, to bleed that Equifax red. It is part of it, but it's also important to make sure that you, you understand the uniqueness that made their companies valuable in the process as well. And so, you have to balance all of those things, Clayton, and, and try to keep alive um, the uniqueness that, that made those organizations great um, and made them appealing to, to bring into the Equifax family. Okay, so we're, we're getting a better feel for the verification services and workforce solutions businesses, um, but it sounds like there's a pretty diverse client base and industry base that you can serve and work with. Today, we're here talking about housing and mortgages, but give us a glimpse into the types of companies that you work with outside of housing, and then we can dive deeper into the mortgage sphere. Well, if you think about it, coming up through the verification services business, just about anybody that originates a loan of some sort, um, whether they or services alone or sets up accounts for Um, folks and needs to know that they have the ability to pay, we have relationships with. So, you know, even telco providers that are providing cellular phones and those type of things that need to know that you have the ability to pay back. Um, Other types of utilities at times are using our data. Like like I mentioned earlier a few times, many of the government agencies and state agencies use our data to ensure that they're getting benefits to the right people as fast as possible and keeping them enrolled in those programs. Uh, quickly and, and making sure the right people are getting the benefits. And the dynamic that's really changed from my view that we've been here over the last few years is it's not just Equifax or the work number that's being adopted. It's across all lines of lending. We're seeing organizations really lean in towards wanting more information about a 
an applicant or a customer's employment information, but also income information. And so whether they're getting that from us or they're getting it in regards to a true pay stub or whether they're getting information out of their bank account um, or other providers similar to Workforce Solutions and getting data from them, what we're seeing is across the board organizations are getting um, are focused on making that part of their lending rules and their policy. And it makes a lot of sense. If you think about, you know, I, I won't say that the light switch was completely flipped in COVID, but if you think about before COVID, a lot of times you might walk into a bank or you might walk directly into um, a car dealer or wherever and apply for credit in person in those locations where there's a body, there's a person, there's a little bit of trust there. Now, so many of our uh, financial products get originated with never meeting anybody. It's all done digitally and online. And so lenders are looking to make sure that they're pulling in additional information uh, to make sure that the, what the decisions they're making are based on real information, accurate information, and they're ensuring that those individuals that they're providing loans to can afford to pay them back. I mean, nobody wants to be uh, providing bad loans. And so all of these different checks and balances become important. The other thing that, you know, that unfortunately is a reality of the digital era and doing things online is fraud continues to go up. And, and a lot of the lenders are dealing with fake pay stubs or uh, fake identities or other things. And so bringing in verified information from different sources, uh, including the work number, um, gives you that ability to really verify that that person is working, they have a job, they've gone through, you know, an I-9 process. There's a lot of things that when you think about somebody getting a pay stub through an organization, a lot of steps get up to come up to that point of an I-9 process to verify that that person can work in the U.S., getting, you know, validating the Social Security number associated to that person, uh, validating a bank account that that deposit's getting put into. All of those things build up behind uh, what we refer to as a, a verification of income. And that adds a lot of value and trust to the lenders to know that uh, they're dealing with someone and they have solid information to make that lending decision against. Let's go, let's go deeper on, on fraud and, and information security. I was just looking at, at housing wire. We've published more than a few articles in the last quarter about an increase in fraud. We just published an article a few weeks ago and the mortgage payoff fraud is up over 500% compared to uh the second quarter and you start to see some of these fraud pressures increase in you know in in periods of uh economic stress or or low volume in the housing industry um where are you seeing fraud or I don't know bad verifications like sh- show up in the the lending process today and and what kind of data can you point out of the the trends you're seeing as it relates to you know accurate reliable lending well, in the auto space, there's a number of articles out there in the last few months that, that talk about, you know, one in one in six or one in eight pay stubs are fraudulent, meaning somebody's it may be mostly correct, but there may be numbers that have been changed. There may be false information there or the entire verification may be fraudulent. The other thing is, you know, during the boom of uh, refinancing, there were there were organizations that were caught, and I, I call them organizations very loosely. Um, they were fraud rings, basically, that people would try to get loans done and put information down, and even have cell phone numbers that, if someone called that cell phone number, they would answer it by the name of that fraudulent company to verify someone's employment to try to get loans approved through or get something done by that. Um, 
the nice thing about our service is, you know, many of our clients, if they if they sensed anything being wrong in that manual process, might come to us or might even come to a commercial credit bureau to verify, is that really a company? And a lot of that got caught through those processes. It really came down to the frontline um, underwriters knowing that, hey, something doesn't smell right here and dug for a little bit more information. Or it could even be, you know, through a quality control process where the loan's about to be closed and through the quality control process, they come to get our data to validate what they had on the application and found out that maybe maybe something didn't add up or that individual actually had a different job than what was being reported. So in auto, if one of six or one of seven applications include a fraudulent pay stub, I'm, I'm assuming like this is someone, you know, walking in with a paper stub or emailing a altered digital copy. Why does that manual step or capability even exist? Why isn't it, why isn't it going straight to digital verification? Well, I, I agree with you completely, Clayton. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even trying to like plug workforce solutions here. I'm like, like just wondering if we're really talking about an ecosystem where 15% of auto applications have some fraudulent pay stub in them, that sounds like it's a process that has to change and has to change yesterday. Well, it, it does. And, and you know, I also want to state that we have a very successful business in auto. So we, we do a lot in that space. Um, and help a lot of folks. And, and we don't have every record. Not a, No one has every record or ability to truly digitally verify everyone. So there's always going to be different flavors of verifying your, your income or using pay stubs. But there's, you know, even if you have a pay stub, there are many ways to verify that or validate that, whether it's against a digital repository like our own or matching that to, um, you know, actual deposit information. But, you know, the, the fraudsters get more and more sophisticated as they move forward. And really, the only way you can protect yourself at scale is to have a, a few different services that you work with that are validating and verifying that information um, through one of many channels to do so. But it's just unfortunately become part of the reality of the world. And I can tell you, we work with a lot of organizations that are tagged as fintechs that, you know, they pull us on every single loan. Um, whether it be a super prime or a subprime, just because they want to make sure that they're not dealing with a fraudulent situation um, and establishing that line of credit with the individual. In auto, um, you know, a lot of the auto lenders, everything is everything's impacted Clayton by how the books are performing. And historically, you know, autos was doing really good, very low default rates the last few years. And um, now we're starting to see delinquencies tick up a little bit in auto and you're starting to see some changes in subprime lending. But that's a space where we, you know, we, we have very good footprint is in the subprime space because almost all of those loans have stipulations that you have to verify that the income's real uh, before they'll, they'll write that loan. And so you mentioned there's fintechs pulling on every single on every application. And I think that probably, you know, you know, spot slides that there's incumbents in auto and home lending who aren't pulling on every application. And I'm assuming that's because of expense. So like, depending on the pool, we're talking about a product that costs a, a couple hundred bucks and there might be lenders who are happy with the manual process to avoid that additional margin compression or like, what's, what's the, like, is, is it price? That's like, would be the deterrent from a hundred percent pool. That, that might be one way to look at it, Clayton. A lot of it is also um, process flow. So again, being very candid, there's a lot of folks that 
they want the minimum data set required to underwrite. And it's even that way in, in mortgage, although there's a lot of data that you have to have in mortgage. You really don't want extra because you have to explain it and document and validate it in the underwriting process. And that's burdensome and expensive. And so, you know, we do see in the mortgage space, um, you know, we're delighted with, with the clients that are pulling us or inquiring to our database on just about every application that moves into underwriting. And uh, we, we appreciate that business very much. And, and we believe it's, it's a, you know, it's a two-way benefit in regards to them being able to digitally process that step of the, of the equation and get it done quickly and get that validated with the GSEs. Um, in the other spaces, it really starts to become more of a risk model. Other areas where, where it may not be used, uh, Clayton, is if I've been a long-term customer at my local bank and I go in to get a HELOC, they may not pull it because they've they've known me for 20 years. They kind of have an idea of the cash flow through my bank account, and they may be comfortable writing a HELOC loan uh, without income or um, validated in that process. However, the space is changing quite a bit. And, you know, in today's HELOC world, a lot of those companies I referred to as fintechs earlier in the conversation that were primarily doing personal loans before where you you might get five, 10 or even fifty thousand dollar personal loan. Many of them are getting into HELOC or HELONs um, because they can they can offer a better rate. They too have been hit with the interest rates going up, and so they're looking for ways to continue lending and make products available at a better rate. And so the the marketplace, from from my view in regards to home equity, has changed a decent amount over the last couple of years. With many of the big first mortgage players that didn't didn't get involved in HELOCs before have jumped into that space to help their existing customers and to keep the business flowing. Um, and we've seen as those organizations bring get involved into it more and more or where we're seeing the uh, what I refer to again as the fintech type of organizations get involved in HELONs and he HELOCs, they've already got their process flow that includes us in it as well as other providers so that they're always getting verified information. And so it becomes very easy for them just to follow the same process they were using before in either first mortgages or um, doing the personal loans and kind of taking some of that technology that already existed and reuse that for this new asset. Hey, I'm Alex Bridgman. I'm the director of data strategy at Altos Research, and we have just released my new podcast called House of Data. House of Data is all about how the most ambitious companies in housing are using data to make better decisions and investments. We have guests like Zach Ronstadt, Darren Bloomquist, Alex Villacorta, Ralph McLaughlin, and more. This podcast is designed for housing professionals and executives who want to use data more and build data-driven organizations in housing. Episodes come out every other Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. So go ahead and go find it on Spotify, iTunes, go find House of Data and hit subscribe. Joel, so going back to the the comment on auto, where we we see one of six or one of seven applications as some type of employment or verification fraud, are you able to draw a parallel to to home lending? Do we know how prevalent um, app income or asset verification fraud is um, in the manual process today? I, I honestly don't, Clayton. I, you know, there's Humda does a great job of documenting why loans fall out. Um, I would say that true fraud on a, that makes it all the way through the process, a lot of organizations don't necessarily re really want to talk about. Um, and you can see some of that in the, uh, the buyback data. But 
the reality is I think that the, the mortgage industry is actually far ahead in regards to checks and balances with the GSEs and other organizations to catch some of these things. You know, the GSEs have very stringent requirements for something to be considered verified income and to meet their uh, underwriting rules. And through that process, you're going to catch a lot of situations that if they're not up, um, not correct and, and not 100% um, appropriate, I, I'll use that word, uh, they'll catch that fraud in the process. But still today, the number one reason that loans die or don't get approved is tied to income. And that can either be that the income can't be verified, the income isn't sufficient to pay for the loan. Um, there's other issues with that, but that's still the largest category according to the Humda data of loans falling out of the process. I spent the last few weeks at events with originators and real estate agents. And uh, it's that, that debt to income blow up that um, everybody's still, um, you know, it, it's the biggest problem. And it's, it's usually, you know, it's consumer fault of buying a car or furniture or something right before buying a house and like blowing up their own ratios. Not necessarily a verification problem, but an actual ratio issue. You, you mentioned that, um, the fraudsters get more and more technically advanced and, and creative in approaches. Do you have any like anecdotal or data driven insights on like how fraudsters are, um, you know, poten potentially defrauding even digital verification? Like, is there anything like that lenders should be looking out for even with digital verification to make sure their lending and underwriting uh, standards are top top tier? Well, I think there's there's a number of things you can do is even if you're bringing in verified or validated information that you're you've got that confidence in always checking it against the application is a good rule because there are times that those don't match. And so one of the examples that I was referring to earlier where where people would call in and even have a cell phone number that would be answered like the organization that didn't truly exist, but to verify that person fraudulently um, there's times that if they come to a third party to get records, that that person may have a job somewhere else. So, you know, let's just say that on the application, they put down that they work for company XYZ. They did a pull from the work number, and we have a record that shows that that individual works at company ABC. And so you now have a, mi a mismatch. In some cases, people may go try to verify that XYZ company manually because that's what's on the application. And they should do so. I'm not recommending not to do that. But you now have a data element to say, well, wait a second, why, why do you have a different job that's active here than the one that was on your application? It gives you that opportunity to, to drill into it and make sure that you're understanding that full situation um, before, before finishing the loan process. I did want to take a quick step back, though, in regards to the debt to income. And I will tell you, in regards to things that we're hearing in the industry, you, you really hit it on the head. Um, back in the boom of 20 and 21, when everybody was refi, you know, those were pretty easy on debt to income because most of the time, even if they were taking cash out, their rates were going down so much, their monthly spend was dropping. So those, you didn't have a lot of challenges there. But today with house, housing prices still being so strong with um, such a shortage of housing, and with the interest rates where they're at, it's, you know, people qualifying today is just really a challenge. And every dollar of income is really important. And, you know, we, we've been working with clients to make sure that if, if need be, that we can break out some of those categories of income even further for them. 
because of the fact that you need every dollar uh, of other income that, that rolls into that pay stub to make sure that you're qualifying the individual appropriately. Yeah, that's spot on. So Joel, Equifax and Workforce Solutions, verification services have been so successful. Um, people in the industry take notice. And I feel like there's fintechs that have become clients, but there's also fintechs who want to be in the business of verification services. So I was just on, a, on LinkedIn last week and saw someone write a long post about Equifax and the dominance of the, the work number and the future of open finance. And uh, it was interesting. So h- how do you think about the competitive landscape and um, like, like where, I mean, I, I know where the work number sits in the competitive landscape, but like, h- how do you think about the future of innovation and competition that's coming up the pipe? And like, I don't know, how do you think about the landscape? So I, I love it. I really do. Cause it, it makes all of us become better. It really does. And the other part that it does Clayton is people wouldn't think of processing a loan today. Now that same individual, I think I know who you're talking about that wrote that would say, absolutely. We should write loans on cash flow. So we don't need a credit score, um, but very few people would write or give out a loan today without some level of credit check. And so there's still the opportunity as, as much as we've done to grow and as much as we're doing to have customers and uh, financial institutions use more and more verified information around income and employment, there's still a lot of opportunity. And one of the challenges is we can't answer for everybody. You know, there, there are people that we don't have on our database. So some of these fintechs are finding ways to get access to their information um, and allow organizations to have a few different providers to get the answers more often and make sure that they can do it across the board. Because when we get the ecosystem built out to a point, Clayton, where we can get verified income information on 95% of the population, even if that requires multiple vendors and sources to pull it together, that's better for me. And that's actually better for the organization. We can start, or I'm sorry, for the whole industry, because we can start talking about standardizations around income and employment standards across all asset types, not just where the GSEs have, you know, really defined it as as it is today. So from my perspective, I see that as a great opportunity. Um, I also see it as a situation where, you know, as new people come in, there's a lot of things that organizations need to to do and educate themselves. And the neat thing about um, startups and new organizations is they're very nimble. They do things very quick and they have great ideas. Um, some of the things about being a big company and and well-established and, and doing it for a long time like ourselves is we're built on you know infrastructure and security and second balances and, and really protecting the consumer's information at all um all stops. And, and that's things that as a lending organization, as you bring in different pro- data providers, whether it's for income or for anything, is really understanding what information that data provider is touching from your customer, what are they storing, and what access does that customer have to know what's going on with their data. I think there's maturity that can, that can occur there um, throughout that cycle. Uh, to protect all of the consumers and lenders and throughout the ecosystem. Uh, but that's where, you know, that's where we take a lot of pride in, in allowing anybody to come look at any time to see who's seen, uh, who's pulled their work number information. Uh, any employee can, can log into our EDR site and get access to see where their data has been used. And they've approved it. Um, and, uh, and it's all governed by FCRA and documented, but they have the ability to come in and see that. If there's something that concerns them, they have the ability to 
block that data and make sure that it doesn't go anywhere. And I think that's important to make sure that that maturity continues across all of the providers in the space um, so that we keep the reputation high and we make it a standard in the lending process. Yeah, standardization and integration is a interesting interesting topic. I as you think about other data businesses, there are very few businesses that provide a hundred percent market coverage, or that's consumer coverage, or national coverage, or global coverage. And so you often see companies pulling in multiple data sources to get a complete picture. Um, we own Altos Research, which does listings data and. What we find a lot of clients doing is layering Altos with MLS data to supplement a national data set. They might not be able to, to reach national capabilities with just MLS agreements. Um, so I under, understand that and can see how uh, standards and verification data could be a really positive thing for the industry. Some of the uh, uh, upcoming startups who, who want a piece of the Equifax pie, um, they, they talk about price. So if a standardization comes across, like, how, how, do you think there's a, a landscape where lenders are, you know, maybe pay a different amount for different pools that come from different data sources or does standardization have to happen in, in pricing as well? No, I, I mean, I, every company is going to have their own price structure and, and, um, go to market approach. And, and I think that is, that has to be maintaining that that way. Same thing with the credit bureaus, although there's similarity to how they sell and price. It, each credit bureau has different pricing models or structures with their clients as appropriate and and work in that fashion. In, you know, there's a lot of things in regards to price, and in our world at least, I can I can speak of our business. There's a lot of different organizations in our partnership and ecosystems that there's cost and and overhead tied to that. We've spent at the same time as we've been growing our database to where now we've got a little over, uh, you know, 160 million active records on on the database and a little over 600 million total, uh, representing about two and a half million employers in, in the country. The same time we've been doing that, we've invested really heavily around getting our data plugged into all of the underwriting systems and, and major platforms, not only in mortgage, but through all of the lending verticals to make sure that we make it easy for people to consume it. And, and you don't always think about that because, again, I'm, I'm just using the, the reference of our sister side of the house and credit. People integrated to credit years ago. <laughs> and so it was a standard. But as these new data sets come in, there's a really a considerable amount of investment and time uh, and work to get these data sets integrated into all of the different platforms that organizations use and not just get the data in there, but help them set up the rules around validating the data, calculating debt to income off of the fields, all of those type of things, so that it's not just bringing the data in, but it's really automating that process and simplifying it. And that takes a lot of work. And, and we've got a, a couple of big teams that have spent the last few years 100% focused on helping organizations get integrated and get them optimized to where they're having you know, the best benefit of having that data in their platforms. So Joel, if you're, you know, out in the field talking to a big mortgage lending client, you know, it's like sitting down with the CTO or COO, what are they asking of you? I'm, I'm sure they're saying, Hey, Joel, we love the, the work number. We love the service, but we need like, what are they like? Where's where your lending clients and in, in mortgage specifically asking you to go? So what we, what we still hear the most across the board with our clients is we wish you had an answer every time we asked the question. You know, so it's it's more records, more fulfillment. 
And that's why, you know, that's why I said we're, we're delighted to see other players in the space that can bring more records or more employees to the front to allow that to be digitized and done automatically. That's the number one piece of it. The other piece is around different cuts of the data. A lot of the lenders have different requirements of, of what they want to see. Some want to see a full three years. Some only want to see the last year. Some only want to see the last six months um, and figuring out what's right for each customer and being able to backwards navigate what that looks like through our entire ecosystem of partners and connectors and everything and make it available. That's where I spend the majority of my time is finding the right product at the right value uh, for our customer base. So Joel, we flirted with the topic of home equity a few minutes ago. Let's let's come back to to home equity. Been been a front and center product as purchase volume has fallen off a cliff in the last 18 months. Um, inventory is incredibly low. I feel like I have to like put that qualifier in every podcast I've had for the last uh, for the last year. But uh, we are talking about a market where there is less opportunity um, in the products where there was opportunity last year, but there is opportunity and home equity is one of those areas. Absolutely, there is. Um, there's also a lot more competition. And because of that, I believe it opens up even more opportunity for the digitalization. But you know, I think we'd be remiss to not kind of take a step back. We all talk about how bad the mortgage market is and nobody's ever seen anything like it. And it's been it's been brutal. But, you know, I look at the industry with just honestly complete admiration that the leaders and the operators of these organizations have kept their companies going. I mean, how many organizations can handle a 70 percent reduction in you know, in, in business in a 12 month period of time and keep their organizations going and moving forward and reinventing themselves. So the mortgage industry as a whole just has to really be complimented on their their resolve and their flexibility and keeping things going. But to get to your to your question about HELOC, we're seeing that change across the board where people used to go into their bank, as I, I referenced earlier, and ask for a HELOC loan and move forward and get it done, we're now seeing them apply five, six, seven different places um, and they can do it digitally. And so it almost becomes like the, some cases, the mortgage or the credit card, the first person to approve it wins. And so that's where we're seeing more and more automation, more and more um, digitization so that people can get that loan approved literally while fingers on the keyboard and get the process done. So again, I think that's the biggest thing that we have seen change in home equity is where it used to be much more of a personal relationship with the bank or maybe your first party lender. We're now seeing people digitally go in, you know, eight o'clock at night and apply at four different places, two which may be traditional mortgage type lending companies, and two that may be complete fintechs out in Silicon Valley that are just getting into the space. And so all these organizations are trying to figure out how to differentiate and all of them are trying to figure out how to win in the speed game of getting you approved and making sure that you can actually afford to pay it back. Um, but we are starting to see demand go up more on that again. And I think you'll continue to see it uh, as refinancing houses doesn't make sense right now with the interest rates. Uh, but, you know, it's it's public public knowledge and lots of articles out there about how much credit card debt is going up other uh, household debt continues to increase and people are looking for ways to consolidate that. And the home equity line of credit or, or a HE loan is, is a great way to get the most advantageous uh, interest rates if you need to finance that. So 
we continue to see that grow and the demand to go up uh, in that space. And, and a lot of people are jumping into it. And, and a lot of the organizations that are getting into that space are very focused on speed and automation and integration. So it's been a, it's been a win for us to be part of that, um, that change uh, in the HELOC space. And uh, I, I believe we'll continue to see it be strong for at least the next 12 months. Yeah, that, that trend of borrowers or homeowners applying across six or seven lenders is is interesting. It's um lenders have been historically really poor at customer retention and um like bringing borrowers back to the same originator, or the same mortgage bank has been a major challenge. Depositories have been better at that, but uh it, you know the the ability for consumers to apply at multiple institutions, uh, non-banks, fintechs, or depositories really quickly puts a whole nother layer of pressure on the mortgage lenders and banks to figure out a way to build enduring relationships where they're, they're not constantly acquiring that customer again and again and again. It's, um, it's not a, there's, there's, there's no easy fix, but the, the topic of building long-term relationships, I'm starting to understand better why, um, that's such an important part for so many lending executives right now because the, the digitalization and the speed is just another, another pressure point on having that, that real relationship. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. When you talk to, when I talk to banks in general, not just talking about mortgage, but when you talk to senior officers at banks, one of their biggest focuses is exactly what you're talking about. It's about getting customers early and maintaining them. And what's different for them is, you know, a lot of times to get them early, they got to get them right out of school. I'm sure we all remember the days when MBNA had a table on every campus to try to get you to be that customer early uh, with their credit cards. The traditional banks are starting to think more along those lines, but they're also becoming really aggressive in auto and early credit cards and using income to validate that person when they have a thin or no file on the credit side because they're really anxious to get you a, to be a customer first and try to build that relationship and keep you for life. And, you know, the success rates still have to be proven, but I can tell you that seems to be a very popular topic and something that we see changing with a number of lenders that they've started using the work number more for those credit cards or first auto purchases to find a way to say yes to the younger customer to get them into that uh, banking organization early. It, there's incredible power in being specialized. And like, I love the the mortgage bank model, but it, the, one weakness is you don't have the ability to, to latch on to consumers directly out of college. I mean, my, I, my first mortgage happened to be by the same fintech company who did my uh, grad school refi. And so like, that was an easy path for me. I did my grad school refi loans in the first mortgage. It was a, it was a good, um, it was a good path. Well, and I, I believe I know who you're speaking of. And, you know, if you look at how they've performed in the last year, um, wow, they, they've just done a phenomenal job. And it's really been by getting customers to become multiple customers with, for them with deposits and with auto loans and personal loans and the mortgage and, uh, and student loans. They, they've really done a phenomenal job of looking across all assets available and making those available to their customers. It'll be interesting to see if other non-banks step into other product categories. It's, it's, you're ref, we're definitely watching Rocket make some of those steps right now and step into other lending categories and, and cons- areas of consumer finance. Um, it'll be interesting to see if any other 
non-bank mortgage lenders take those same steps. So, so Joel, we talked a lot about your business, some some big successes and a lot of innovation. Uh, as we close out the episode, what keeps you up at night? Where where what are you thinking about in the future? And like, where do you need to put energy and effort to ensure that this success path continues? Well, that's you know, it's a great question. Um, I would say probably waiting for my kids to get home is what keeps me up at night um, for the most part. <laughs> uh, but uh, around the business, you know, the things that we are really just laser focused on is how do we make sure that we are getting closer and closer to answering the question with the the data that's needed to fit the business need um, each time we're asked. And, you know, we're not experts at that by any means. We're still learning a lot. We're, we're investing a lot to make sure that our products are getting more and more focused and that our database is getting larger. But that that's what's at top of mind for me is how do we make sure that we've always got the right data set or product set for all of the different industries and verticals we, we work with and how do we get some more customer feedback. So as we continue to restructure products, we, we put them together in a way that maybe aligns with the lending and the underwriting processes uh, very closely and, and makes it easier for the data to be used and more valuable um, and, and less expensive to them for the overall process. So we're always trying to reinvent that while building the core database bigger and bigger. That's a wrap. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Clayton. I hope you have a great weekend and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas. Texas.